0: Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC, terms and conditions apply. This episode of The Great Unsolved is brought to you by Brüsh. Brüsh is an electric toothbrush that will change the way you think about brushing your teeth. With powerful sonic technology and ultra-gentle bristles, the Brüsh redefines what it means to have super clean teeth. It's like that feeling when you just leave the dentist. A fresh, whole mouth clean, every single day. Our listeners get 15% off their total purchase with code POD15. Follow the link in the show notes and enter the code POD15 to get your exclusive discount and upgrade your oral care routine. All right, welcome back, or just welcome to The Great Unsolved. I've been kind of on and off with this for a while, but I think we're getting back into it now. I am going back through the first maybe 50 cases I did and redoing them. Because I know how to record now, I know how to edit, I know how to research, and it's just going to be a lot better. So, this is going to be the case of Debbie Wolf. Which, if you've been around for a while, you know was my very first case. And I actually found out some new things, so I'm really excited to share it with you guys. But uh, let me shout out my socials. We've got Great Unsolved on Twitter, Great Unsolved Pod on Instagram. You can search Great Unsolved on YouTube and Facebook. We have both a group and a page. We also have a Patreon, and all that's going to be linked down below for anyone who wants to access any of those. Let's just get into the case of Debbie Wolf once again. Debbie Wolf was only 28 years old at the time she went missing and was found deceased in 1985. In her short time on earth, though, she did seem to do a lot. She brightened a lot of people's lives and she completed nursing school. At the time she went missing, she was actually working in a veterans hospital in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and it's said that she absolutely loved working there. Her family described her as super happy and very chatty, and she was really close to her mother, Jenny, just very close. They were probably each other's best friends. Debbie did have her own home, although it was unclear if she bought it or not. Not that it really matters. She lived on the outskirts of Fayetteville, North Carolina. She actually lived in Cumberland County, North Carolina at 401 North Ramsey Street. This was a quaint little cabin away from pretty much everything else and a few hundred feet away from the road where you drive to her house. This land also had lots of wooded areas, it had a nice little pond, and she lived there with her two dogs who she absolutely loved. No one found her living alone as an issue because she had these two big dogs and because she had no enemies, and she was very independent. She was never one to kind of get worried being home alone. She didn't mind that she was out on her own. She probably liked it. I know I would love that, just kind of being out of the city and in a relaxing area with my dog. That'd be great, but it didn't work out too good for her. One thing that is not clear in reports Is whether or not Debbie had a boyfriend at the time she went missing. When I first reported on this case, and up until yesterday, I had never heard she might have had a boyfriend. But yesterday, when I was doing some research, some sources said she did have a boyfriend at that time and that they were pretty serious at that time. But it's never really mentioned by the family and it's not mentioned in any law enforcement information or anything about that, at least the stuff that's released to the public. This we'll get into later why it's important if she had a boyfriend or not, but I'm sure many of you can already figure out why it would be important to the investigation. Since we're going to get into the timeline next, I did want to let you know that different sources have somewhat different timelines. Specifically, Unsolved Mysteries had a different timeline than pretty much all the other sources did. And I don't really know how to take that. I know Unsolved Mysteries does their research, and they had the family on there. But when it's compared against, like, ten other sources, and it's the only one that has this timeline, it kind of confuses me. So I'm gonna tell you both timelines, but... We don't know which one is the true one. So one thing we know for a fact is that the last time she saw her family was Christmas. She celebrated Christmas with them and there's pictures from it. And her family, her, specifically her mother, talked about it on Unsolved Mysteries. But from here, it's unclear if she worked Christmas night or if she worked the night of the 26th. So either December 25th or 26th of 1985, Debbie left work at 4 p.m. And at this time, nothing seemed off to her co-workers. She seemed to be happy and in good spirits. She was just going to go home and get ready for her shift the next day. But she didn't show up for her 8 a.m. shift at the Veterans Hospital on either December 26th or 27th of 1985. Those who knew her said this was pretty alarming because Debbie was very punctual, she loved her job, and she was not one to miss a shift at all, especially if she didn't call it. Although the hospital and others tried to call her, there was never an answer. So eventually some friends of hers who worked with her decided, you know what, let's call Jenny and we'll send her out there or see if she knows Where Debbie is or what's up with Debbie. So some sources say that Jenny knew something was very wrong right when she got the call that Debbie had not come into work. Other sources say that she was not expecting the worst. These sources say she just thought maybe Debbie forgot to call in or Debbie slept too late or Debbie was sick. Something along those lines that could easily be explained away. So Jenny Edwards, who was Debbie's mother, and a family friend named Kevin Gorton decide to go check on the cabin to see if she was around there. Some sources, which is Unsolved Mysteries, states that Debbie's father went with them to check, while others just list that Jenny and Kevin went to search. Either way, a few people went to go look for her at her house and see what was up. As soon as they drove up, though, they knew something was really off. There were beer cans all over the yard, which was something Debbie would not have allowed, and her mother noted it wasn't even the kind of beer that Debbie drank, so it didn't make any sense being in her yard. The dogs were also just running loose, which was sometimes normal. She would let them out to run, but they hadn't been fed, which was not normally the case, because Debbie loved those dogs and made sure she always fed them. They did see Debbie's car there, but it wasn't parked in the spot where she would normally park it. Upon looking inside, they also saw that the driver's seat was pushed all the way back, which was not how Debbie kept it. Debbie was only five foot three, so if she sat with the seat all the way back, she would not have been able to reach the pedals. So this was looking pretty suspicious already. Upon entering the cabin, they found a nurse's uniform on the kitchen floor, as well as some other things that seemed to be thrown around. And later it was confirmed that this nurse's uniform was not the one Debbie was wearing the day before she went missing. The nurse's uniform she was wearing the day before she went missing has never been recovered. After a little bit more of looking around, the family friend, Kevin, actually found Debbie's purse and it was kind of shoved under the bed in like a hasty manner. That's not where someone would normally put their purse. I don't care who you are, you're not shoving your purse under the bed. And that's absolutely not where Debbie kept it normally. But nothing seemed to be stolen from the house, so they didn't really know what was going on. They weren't sure if Debbie came home and someone was there, or she heard something, stuffed the purse under the bed, and then just nothing happened, or they didn't know what was going on. Jenny eventually went to Debbie's answering machine, which showed that a new message was on it. And this is a point of controversy for a lot of people in this case, and I'm going to discuss it more after I read it, but here's what it said. Hey Deb, missed you here at work today. I was just wondering how you doing. Uh, If you're able to give me a call here at the ward, then it gives the numbers, or give me a call at home tonight. Uh, You've been having a lot of days. Got worried when you missed another one. Just want to make sure you're okay. Bye. If you listen to the recording, which you can find pretty much anywhere, I'll even link it in the description notes below. But if you listen to it, To me, at least, it doesn't sound like someone who committed a crime. It sounds like someone pretty calm, even like a manager who was just wondering where she was. The odd thing in this message is that the caller states Debbie had been gone for a few days, when she had actually only been missing for a few hours at this time. I've looked at this every which way, and I found a few possibilities that I think this message could be just pushed off as. We could speculate that maybe Debbie and this guy normally worked the same hours, but recently Debbie worked different hours or he worked different hours or one of them had been off for Christmas and he just wasn't aware. So he thought that Debbie had been missing for a few days. Another way this could go is the person simply just misspoke. We all do it, and I feel like this message could be very easily discounted. But the thing is that the person who left it has never publicly been identified. We'll get into that more later. After Jenny and Kevin and maybe Debbie's father finished searching the house, they ended up calling the Cumberland County Sheriff Department. Jack Watts, a captain at the department, was put on the case and went out there with dogs who ended up picking up no scent of Debbie whatsoever. However, they didn't do a thorough search, and he then told Jenny that they would have to wait at least 72 hours before a real search could be done. Now, we've all heard of the cases where People have to wait 24 hours or 48 hours to file a missing persons report, or where the police just won't take the missing persons report because the missing person is an adult. But I've never heard someone specify 72 hours. That just kind of seems like an odd amount of hours, and it kind of made the police department a little sketchy right off the bat. Finally, on December 31st of 1985, five days after Debbie had been last seen, a somewhat actual search started, and this was done by the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department. I say somewhat here because they didn't search the pond at all. The police department took dogs around the land and even like around the edge of the pond, but then concluded that there was no sign of Debbie and the dogs didn't pick up on anything. Jenny even asked if they would just put a little rowboat in the water and search around, but they said, "Ah, it's getting late, so we don't know, we'll let you know tomorrow. They never actually did it, though. On January 1st of 1986, the police department did not come back to search the pond, so Jenny and Kevin ended up privately hiring divers to search the pond. One of these divers was actually Kevin himself, and then another friend, Gordon Childress. They dove in and searched around. After about only two minutes of being in the water, Gordon found footprints and drag marks that were indented on the bottom of the pond. This trail of drag marks and footprints led him to Debbie's body that was waist up inside a large oil barrel and sitting on the bottom of the pond. Once he confirmed it was a body, he did not move it. He simply got out of the pond, and they called the police to go get it. The police did later come and actually retrieve the body and the oil barrel, so they did one thing right so far. It was clear to Jenny, Kevin, Gordon, and some police officers that this was indeed a barrel that Debbie was in, and they all saw it being pulled out of the pond. The police officers even pulled it out of the pond themselves. But later on, they are going to deny all of this. Jenny thought this barrel looked familiar, so she looked where her daughter had kept an oil barrel that they would normally use for target practice, and it was missing. There was even still like the circle indentation on the ground where the barrel had been, but the barrel besides the one Debbie was in, was nowhere on the property. This night, the police were talking about the barrel. Jenny overheard them. Other people overheard them. And the police were talking about how to get it out of there, how to mark it. But they ended up leaving it on the property, saying they would come back the next day to retrieve it. But that never happened. And we'll get more into that into a little bit, because that just makes me so mad in this case. Welcome to BreezeLine, where you'll say, ta-ta, T-Mobile, because we've got more reliable home internet that's a whole lot faster. In fact, 10 times faster. No, seriously, because we have real internet backed by our fiber-powered network. And T-Mobile, well, they just have a 5G cellular network. So act now to get superior home internet. Find your perfect speed with prices starting at just $19.99 a month for 24 months. Terms and conditions apply. Go to BreezeLine.com to learn more. Kevin was the one to ID Debbie, and upon looking at her, he was pretty confused as to how she was so clean. Himself and Gordon had been in the pond for just 20 minutes tops and didn't get the mud or silt off of them for over three days. Obviously, they figured this out after he ID'd Debbie, but he remembered how clean she was, and later, when Jenny got the clothes she was found in, she would remark about how clean they were, even though the police department said they never cleaned them. On January 2nd of 1986, they returned to the cabin, but the barrel was gone, and the police began to negate its entire existence. They basically told Jenny and the others that what they had actually seen was Debbie's coat ballooning around her, but a barrel never existed. Even though the one from Debbie's property was missing, even though the police touched it, even though Gordon touched it, even though the police were talking about it, and it just, it doesn't make any sense. Maybe, like, in the shock of the moment, this would be possible But it was reported on papers, and later a PD employee would actually come forward saying that there was a record of it. In the same newspaper article that I read about her being found in a barrel, Harold Little from the Cumberland County PD said this, quote, I'm reasonably positive it will be investigated as a murder, but we're awaiting the results of the autopsy, end quote. So, at this point in the case, at least some of the police were already assuming this was a murder. But later on, they would all completely flip flop, whether by their own judgment or by the judgment of higher ups in this case. The autopsy was done on the second as well, and the coroner concluded two very important things one, that Debbie died from drowning, and two, that her body had not been in that pond the full time she was missing. A private investigator would later state that there was no way she had been in the pond the entire time she had been missing. So we have two professionals in this industry saying there's no way Debbie was there the whole time. And that just adds a whole nother layer of mystery to this case. The sheriff was actually the one to suggest that it was accidental. But here's a few problems with that assumption. Multiple abrasions were found on several of her fingers that would point to a struggle. These would be defense wounds. There was also semen found inside her body, but this swab was lost before DNA testing advanced enough to find out who it was from. Her body was in a very relaxed state but most drowning victims have their hands and arms in clawing positions. Her eyes and mouth were also closed in a relaxed state, but most drowning victims have both just wide open. There was only about half a teaspoon of water in her lungs, whereas a normal drowning victim would have quite a bit more. And lastly, there was no froth or foam found in her airways, whereas normal drowning victims have at least some. This is normally a vital tool used to diagnose a death by drowning, and she did not have this symptom. The sheriff's department proposed this scenario. Quote, possibly Miss Wolf was playing with her two dogs and she fell in the pond, or maybe she was trying to save one of her dogs that walked in the pond, became frightened, and disoriented in the water. The thing was, it wasn't a very deep pond. Debbie was about 30 feet from the shoreline when she was found, and it only got to about five and a half or six feet there. So it wouldn't be super plausible to assume that a healthy adult woman drowned in this pond, especially if she was very used to living around it, and it would make even less sense that her dogs went in it and weren't able to get out if they had lived there for a while. The sheriff's office claimed, quote, County detectives propose that Debbie may have succumbed to immersion syndrome. Immersion syndrome, also referred to as immersion foot or trench foot, is a non-freezing peripheral cold injury caused by prolonged or repetitive exposure to damp, cold temperatures. The extremity first becomes cold, numb, pale, edematous, and clammy. This is followed by blistering, end quote. However, none of these symptoms were found on Debbie. So it's not plausible to think she had this with absolutely no symptoms because that is not something that scientifically happens. Another weird aspect of this case has to do with the clothes she was wearing when they found her. And they didn't do the inventory when they found her, It was a few months later when Jenny received the clothing, after the autopsy was finished. Debbie was wearing a bra that was far too large, actually three cup sizes too large and two band sizes too large. She was wearing a Pittsburgh Steelers shirt that no one recalled her owning. She was wearing brown corduroys that were way too big for her, also that no one recalled her owning. An army issue jacket that could not be traced, sadly, she did actually own an army issue jacket from her brother, but that one was found in her closet and it was a completely different size. She was also wearing men's Nike sneakers that were two sizes too big and had absolutely no mud from the banks of the pond on them. If she had fallen in or even just been walking around outside, there would have been mud on them. These shoes were completely clean. And Jenny checked with the police department and they stated, no, we never cleaned the shoes or any of the clothing. Police state in Unsolved Mysteries that there were pictures of her wearing these shoes, so they had to have been hers. She may have had like the same kind of design, but family and friends know she did not have men's shoes that were two sizes too big for her. That just doesn't make any sense. So now let's look a little deeper at some things in the case. It has been speculated for years that law enforcement knew who did this and were trying to help them out or had some other connection to the case because of their overall neglect to the case and their complete denial of evidence. As I stated above, the captain deployed to the scene did not do a thorough search by anyone's means, and seemingly did not ask many questions, which raises tons of red flags right off the bat. The police also negated all the evidence pointing towards her death not being accidental, at least after the autopsy came out. Harold Little was quoted saying he expected this to be a murder before the autopsy came out, but then he completely flip-flopped, and seemingly so did many other people in this case. There was autopsy evidence as well as suspicious circumstances surrounding the entire case of Debbie going missing and her body being found that pointed towards a struggle, which never should have been ignored because that goes against an accidental death. The barrel, though, is the main piece I look at for the theory of police neglect or sabotage. Jenny, Kevin, and the other friend all saw a barrel taken out of the lake. They all saw Debbie's body taken out of this barrel. They all saw where the barrel had been sitting next to Debbie's home. The police had even been talking about the barrel. And an employee came out years later saying that there was, in fact, a barrel. It's factual that the barrel was there and that Debbie's body was found inside of it. So why the police went against this, I have no idea. The day after Debbie's body was taken, the barrel was nowhere to be found. It just completely disappeared. The sheriff's department just kept on denying that it was ever really there. Once again, they suggested that the coat Debbie was wearing when she was found probably ballooned around her and looked like a barrel to people. Now, you can totally tell the difference, especially when it's taken out of the water. And Jenny, Kevin, Gordon were all there to see Debbie's body taken out of the water. Three people are not all going to be that delusional, all right? Eventually, Don Smith, who worked for the sheriff's department, admitted that there was a barrel, but the police don't know what happened to it pretty much, evidence went missing. This seems like too much evidence, though, altogether to just be a misstep by police. Maybe they accidentally lost this evidence and tried to save themselves, so they came up with the story that it never existed. But then why negate all the other things? Why go against factual information and say, no, it was just an accidental drowning? Nothing else was suspicious. To me, it seems more like they knew who did it and were just trying to save someone by ignoring the overwhelming evidence in this case. Another thing I didn't get to mention that didn't add up is that the police believe a patient at the hospital Debbie worked at left the odd voicemail. They say they questioned him and everything checked out fine, but his name has never been released, and supposedly, right after he was questioned, he fled the state and has not been able to be located since. Innocent people don't do that. That's just not how it works. So, he definitely was sketchy. The suspects in this case mostly consist of mentally ill patients at the VA hospital, and two volunteers at the hospital that both seemed to have a thing for Debbie. One of these volunteers had a psychiatric history and actually called Debbie at her home once. He said he knew where she lived and threatened to come there. In addition to this, he was very persistent on asking Debbie out, and she was very clear she did not want to go out with him. It is unknown whatever came of this interaction or the volunteer. The other volunteer was a little less scary, although he did persistently ask Debbie out as well. There's not much information on the mentally ill patient that the police interviewed, but since it was a veteran's hospital, if he was involved, it might explain why she was found in an unknown army jacket. One other suspect would be her boyfriend, if she had one. It's completely unconfirmed that she had a boyfriend, as there are differing reports, but if she did, that would be a good place to start because generally you look at the close family and friends first because it's more likely them than a stranger. Police have never mentioned a boyfriend, though, so I'm not going to go in depth on this. My theory is that the man who left the voicemail did indeed kill her. The voicemail seems really odd to me, although it is in a calm voice. It seems like the message of someone who is trying to cover their tracks but didn't really fact check before doing so. Jenny even suggested on Unsolved Mysteries that maybe the killer called and left the message thinking that no one would listen to it for a few days and then the time frame of a few days would make sense in the message. The only problem I have with that is that I would think even answering machines in 1985 would say the date or time the message was left, but I wasn't alive then, so I really have no idea if they did this or not. I think the killer was either a patient or volunteer, as that would explain the army jacket and their stalking, Debbie, at the time before her death. I think these individuals should have been looked at a little more closely, kind of seems like once the police decide it was an accident, they brushed off all other evidence of it not being an accident. I think whoever killed her was there before she got home and when she got inside. This is when he would have had time to drink all the beers and trash the yard. And when she discovered someone was there, she stashed her purse under her bed in order to try and hide it. Maybe thinking it was going to be a robbery. Then after doing so, this man attacked her and she fought back, hence the defensive wounds on her fingers. Then since both the coroner and the private investigator stated she couldn't have been in the water the entire time she was missing, that means he took her somewhere else for a few days. He had to have. At some point throughout this, he most likely raped her based on the vaginal swab, but we can't be sure because that evidence was lost. And then one night, Before the actual search started, he killed her, dressed her in his clothing, and brought her back home to discard her body. This would explain why the footprints were so fresh, and why Debbie was so clean when she was found. Again, this is completely just speculation, just as all unconfirmed information in this case is, and I'm not really sure if we'll ever know what happened to Debbie, but... Let me know any of your theories because this is a case that got me into true crime and I am very interested in hearing all points of view for this case. So just let me know that on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever else there is. Other than that, this case is done. So just stay safe and have a great day. Progressive protects more than just your home and car. You could save when you bundle your motorcycles, ATVs, boats, and RVs. Doesn't that sound good? Like the sound of the wind in the trees as your RV sits parked in the forest. Is that the call of the majestic owl? And there's the sound of a tree branch crashing into the roof of your RV. Oof, I guess their nest was in that branch. But you know what does sound good? You're covered with Progressive. So bundle all your vehicles and home in one place and save with the multi-policy discount. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers.